Hello, witches. This is Kara Kovacs, and this is Business Witch. As a third-generation witch, at least, and a business and life coach for mission-driven entrepreneurs and leaders, I teach you how to make money and magic as liberatory practices. Because when we know, seek, and embrace our full potential, we create a better world for everyone. Here you'll find tools, conversations, spells, and inspiration that take you from waiting to creating so you can build the business and life you're oh so worthy and capable of having. Let's go. Hello, witches. We are back with another incredible guest. And I wonder if maybe you've already heard of her, maybe you've already read her book. And if not, perhaps you'll be heading over to the show notes to buy the book by the end of this episode. It is my pleasure to welcome author and founder of Ladies Get Paid, Claire Wasserman. Hi. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for being here. Also, former New Yorker turned West Coast person. I love me a former New Yorker turned West Coast person. (laughs) I was going to say, usually, you know, we find each other because we're wearing all black, but I guess I'm embracing some color today. (laughs) That's nice. Congratulations on doing that. Yeah, I'm still in like my all black uniform, but I do feel very cheerful being here in the sunshine. I'd love for you to tell the people about your work in the world, what you do. I know Ladies Get Paid got started in 2016, so maybe you can take us back a ways and let us know how you got here. Sure. So I started my career in independent film, which I think is a fantastic way for anybody to begin a career because it was it's probably going to be the hardest thing you have ever done. Film producing and then fundraising, went into marketing just became very interested to see who controls the money, just close to those with power, not yet knowing how I wanted to maybe wield it myself. But I I knew I wanted to have a big impact. And something that I was very naturally good at was communicating and convincing people to say yes, yes to marketing, yes to fundraising. But eventually found myself deeply moved by community building, by connecting people, and ended up working for first a nonprofit and then for a startup that's that's in the business of connecting freelancers in the design world and got this really interesting bird's eye view of hiring. And within that became very concerned, not just with getting people jobs, but helping them thrive at the job. And of course, women were not getting promoted in the ways that they should be. They were not being paid in the ways that they should be. I had a kind of sexist experience that really startled me, that woke me up to a lot of the statistics that are out there around the wage gap and the leadership gap and financial anxiety in this country and all these things that I had never really been aware of, which of course reeks of my privilege. But I do want to, in my defense, this was in 2015 that I had this kind of awakening. And at that time, people really were not talking about this stuff in the mainstream way that we are now. And so in going down this rabbit hole of research, I felt absolutely called to do something to try to close these gaps. Though, of course, you know, what can you as an individual do, right? Systemic obstacles require policy change and policy change, well, that requires time and I'm an impatient person. So it really took me about a year and we can go into more detail of the the specifics here of what then happened and starting Ladies Get Paid, but it was really searching for just like an individual on Monday what could I do to at least close my own friggin' gaps? How could I take command of my career, of my paycheck, 
and then use that to teach others. And the whole thing, the real catalyst then was, well, let's negotiate our salaries. And that's what Ladies Get Paid was founded on. I love that. I think sometimes as a solopreneur and like having been in business for myself as long as I have, there's this real hyper focus in the coaching industry on having an abundance mindset that I think there are a lot of parallels we can draw one between why systemically that's not like an obvious thing for people to necessarily have and two, how that shows up in entrepreneurship and also in the office. So if we were to maybe make some of those comparisons for people, what were you seeing when you started out, people really believing was true for them about their ability to negotiate their salary? I don't like saying their worth. I don't know if there's like a different word that you would use. I love that you brought this up. So the aha moment I had of like reading all these terrible statistics, what could I possibly do? Searching for that like individual step. It came from a friend who realized that she was not charging as much as her male counterparts. She was a very talented freelance art director. And for her, the issue was twofold. One was lack of information. So that's kind of just straightforward, right? But the second part was even with the information or maybe even without the information, why was her default to charge less? Like that was not other people deciding to pay her less. She was deciding to charge less. What was going on there? So part mindset, but also part information. And I began Ladies Get Paid by hosting town halls uh, for women to come and talk about money. So before figuring out, well, what what do they actually want to learn? What are the tangibles that they need to be taught And I shouldn't say they, I should say we, because I was very much in this with them. I joke that I started Ladies Get Paid because I needed Ladies Get Paid. Uh, There had to be catharsis. There had to be a space where at least we could recognize each other in this. And the email I would get after every one of these events, and I eventually went across the country, I did 19 cities hosting these town halls with 200 women each, was always, I thought I was the only one. (laughs) Every email, I thought I was the only one. And for folks really to see that it's not just about a mindset shift. It's also not just about information. It's also not static. You don't learn this once and then you're done. Like it's ever-changing. You're ever-changing. And I think the most interesting part of all this, which is something you've spoken to here and feeling a bit of discomfort around using the word like your worth, right, is, well, how the heck do you know what your worth is? It's being able to separate your worth as a human being, which is priceless, okay, with what is your worth in the market and pricing yourself as an employee or as a worker and also knowing, again, that that changes the market shifts. So it's really this interesting balance. This is why I love talking about money and salary negotiation because it is way bigger, not straightforward, and it does require you to hold multiple things at once. Again, this belief that, yes, you are worth it, you know, from a from a deeply philosophical sense, but you know, you're only worth as much as somebody is convinced that they will pay you. So you also have to really get good at making a compelling business case for your worth. But again, protecting your quote real worth, the human worth, which as I said is is priceless. I think people too often forget to make that distinction. Like they go in really strong with the obviously your worth is priceless. And so then, da 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 da. And so you're looking at this really kind of multifaceted and, as you said, fluid ecosystem that includes the market. It also includes things like, and I see this in the coaching industry all the time, 
this is why I have tiered pricing, your historic, like your family's access to generational wealth is going to impact your money mindset. Like what geographic location you were raised in and like what you were taught about money there is going to impact your access to capital. And I think we just like leave so much of this nuance out of the conversation. So I'm curious for you, you went to 19 cities, every city, everyone was saying, I thought I was the only one. I'm sure you talked to like so many different kinds of people what do you see to be like the most overarching things, like the most overarching themes, like everybody has this in some capacity. And then maybe some things that surprised you that we don't talk about enough that are like really important differences between us. Yeah. Perfectionism and imposter syndrome were the two main themes that were universal uh, amongst every everyone. I would say probably more of the perfectionism if I had to pick that also showed me that in order to teach somebody to advocate for their worth, the first step is you got to really believe that you're worth it. So not just giving you a script for negotiating your salary, but doing a lot of the internal work too. So that was universal. You know, I said this before that information isn't enough. It's really how you feel about the information that'll be the catalyst or not for taking action. So I ended up getting my a master's certificate in financial psychology and behavioral finance because I was, you know, teaching a lot of women these things and, and they're going, oh my God, this is life-changing. Thank you. But then they're not taking action on it. And in large part, that was because of historical baggage, you know, that they were still carrying um, that was blocking them from making change. So that was, that's also universal. There were differences. I mean, you know, I remember one night was I was in Detroit, Michigan, and the next night was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, two very different, you know, from, from a financial standpoint, very different cities. And in Detroit, there was a lot of talk about financial independence, the need for it, like the desperate need for it. Women who were coming out of abusive relationships, for example, um, whereas in Grand Rapids, it was much more of a conversation of confidence where they maybe had a lot of privilege, things were going their way, but they didn't feel like they could take big risks. So maybe you could say that actually both were kind of saying the same thing, right? A desire for risk-taking, but one was more external strategies, right? How do I get out of this relationship and start building my savings versus the other one was a little more of an internal, how do I build up the confidence within myself? because they technically did have the finances, they, they probably could take those risks. Mm. Super fascinating. So fascinating. And I want to earmark something you said. I've never heard the term financial psychology before, I don't think. Tell the people a little bit about that. Yeah, it's kind of new-ish. I think it started in the 80s. And there's only like two programs out there that I read about it in the New York Times and I signed up for the course that Creighton University basically digs into the universal ways that we get in our own way when it comes to money. And going back to the information is not enough, it's how you feel about the information. So a lot of people who take the course are are in the financial services industry and are trying to convince their clients like, hello, you should be opening this account, blah, blah, blah. Here's why it's great for you. But then their clients are not doing it. And I was seeing this, by the way, in the latest Get Paid community and in my own life of mutual funds are not risky. They give you effectively free money with compound interest. You have enough to put in it, yet why are we not investing our money? It just feels risky. Okay, well, where does this fear of risk come from? And really unpacking 
the stories that we have either been told and then absorbed or, you know, why are we hanging on to these narratives? Which if anyone who does therapy work, I mean, this is just in general what one does, right? To understand why are we the way we are today? It's the unpacking of the past. Is This is just now through the lens of money. You're reminding me of a very funny anecdote I don't think I've ever shared on this podcast. So I have a degree in intersectional feminism. And I remember in one of my first women's studies classes, our assignment was to interview someone from the Betty Friedan era of feminism and ask them like what they wanted to share were their like big takeaways. So I interviewed my grandma Selma, who is like lives on Long Island from the Bronx, very, very, I'm going to do an impression of her, but like very thick Long Island accent. And she is, she was born in 1929. How old is she? 95? Something like that. Anyway, I remember I interviewed her and my paper, I was like, I don't know what to do with this grandma. Cause she was like, well, you know, you always want to have a little bit of money so you don't have to ask your husband for anything. And like, that was the extent of the, like what she had gotten. (laughs) And I think like that kind of that was the most that she could say is like she worked, you know, for 30 years at a glasses shop in Long Island so that she could like go to the supermarket without asking my grandpa for $20. And I think when we think about like why women historically feel more nervous, it's like you need to save just the most bare minimum amount in case you have an emergency. And then like, there's really no reason for you to have to, or even think you could be capable of understanding anything else. Right. Right. It's fascinating. I mean, in my class, yeah, we, we interviewed family members. We went through our own, what they're called financial flashpoints. So these like major money memories we have and seeing the thread, you know, the patterns and how it led to who you are today. But yeah, very, and then, you know, historical moments of the Great Depression and how that then impacted the how our grandparents, you know, interacted with money and how then in turn the messages our parents received from it and then what we were taught. I found it to be massively instructive and I wish everybody could, I wish this was required, you know, for everyone. <laughs> so much more practical than like geometry. Oh my God, don't get me started. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who can't see, she made a very cute face. Um, I'm curious. I was like researching just things that I had heard you speak on. Um, and you had said something about like this not actually being about money for you. And I think that that's a, a really important kind of place to go with the conversation because we're, we're talking so much about like why the money is important. But I think it's not about the money. And it, Also, when we're coaching people on money, it's not about the money for them either. So what is it about for you and what is it about for other people generally? Wow, you really did some research here because, yeah, it's not something I've talked about too much about. A real fire that I had to start Ladies Get Paid was realizing how much time and energy I had spent actually hating my body came from there and then going, what the fuck? Like, where did that come from? And and just getting really angry about society and all of like, what could I have done with my life? You know, and I've already done a lot, but like, think about the superpowers I could have had if I didn't spend so much time starting at, you know, it was really for me age like 15, 16 of just like self-loathing 
And that, you know, a lot of it was manifested in body dysmorphia, but of course got expressed in other ways like perfectionism or just self-berating or whatever, if I made a mistake. And just the energy lost in that. So I'm not even talking about the missed promotions or, you know, but just living our freaking purpose or being happy in this world. We're just spending so much energy on the self-flagellation and really, I mean, I just, it just drove me nuts. Yeah. So that was kind of like the personal catalyst. And then the community catalyst was reading those statistics and really trying to find like a way to channel this where we could see relatively quickly progress in our lives. Because again, the relationship we have with ourselves, I mean, that's going to take a lifetime of repair. And this isn't me saying it easy, but the quickest thing you could probably do to change your life is to go raise your prices. I mean, you don't have control over that necessarily, right? Because you need the other person to say yes to you. But that is a change you can make today that will have generational impact. And it's a starting point. And then you realize, proof, I can do it. Also, I'm taking up more space in this way. What are other ways that I can take up space? And find it to be this great domino effect. It's like once you start raising the bar for yourself in one aspect, all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to be in, getting out of this job or getting out of this relationship or I'm going to change this relationship I have with myself. Like I just deserve better in all aspects of my life. But you have to start, get to hang your hat on somewhere and you have to see proof, I think, to be encouraged to keep going. And I do think raising your prices, that that's a, that's that tangible. Every time my clients raise their prices, and I can also, I'll just include myself in this speaking from personal experience, I've always had the same mind drama of, are people going to pay this new rate, right? And the thing that has helped me now having done that many times is like, girl, you're having literally the same thought. (laughs) Like it is the same thought, different number. And I think people who don't, they don't have that history of evidence of being able to be like, oh, it was like that the first time I charged somebody money for anything. And then it was the first time I raised the rate by 25%. And then it was the first time I sold my most expensive offer that I had ever created. It's the same thought. Yeah. Y'all. <laughs> I, I think back to when we, because a big negotiations we do will be with brands, right? For these, these partnerships that support ladies get paid. And I'll think back to in the beginning asking them for what seemed like a lot of money. And quite frankly, it was at the time, right? For what we were. Now that number seems so low. So I think of it as very, it's my cute number. It's so ador- so if you're having trouble charging today a lot of money, just project into the future, your future self looking back at you being like, oh, like this is, this is going to be small in comparison. And that should hopefully encourage you. And also you're setting a really good example. So, you know, for to just a quick thing, like I'm we're having twins in February and I decided to just put my registry out there like I host free monthly job seeker support groups you know we don't charge that for them there's a purpose to it right it's it drives traffic to the ladies get ladiesgetpaid.com/subscribe so everybody come and join but you know it's an hour of my time and I do a lot of live coaching on there and at the end of this last one I said you know if you got value out of this we don't ask you for any money, but I'm going to tell you right now, we're having twins and that's going to be expensive. We got a diaper fund going. We have to buy 6,000 diapers in this coming year. Contribute what you can. And I got an outpouring of you know people contributing, but also beautiful messages. And part of this was also me literally saying to them, I was nervous to do this. Like, 
I, you know, and I want you to ask for help, ask for support when you need it. And especially if it's in a value exchange like this. So if you're, and you know, and the last thing I'll say on that is, remember, if you underprice yourself, you're undercutting other people. So you got to level the playing field for everybody. And it starts with charging more and negotiating so we can really teach these clients, these employers, that this should be a fair value exchange and teaching them what that looks like. So there's a lot of lessons within this that you're doing. It's not just about you. And it's so interesting to me, like when I coach more corporate clients, because a lot of my clients and a lot of people who listen to this podcast are entrepreneurs who are also coaches. But when I coach corporate clients who are doing negotiations for either salary increases or uh, they want to teach a program in an institution that probably has a large budget, they're still in their head about it. And it's like those places spend $25,000 a year on granola bars in the office kitchen that nobody eats. Mm. And like the way that we think about how we pay people and that we're negotiating them on like a 10% raise that we just like flush thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars into things like the art that you put on the wall in the lobby and like that we don't value the humanity of the employees in the same way a lot of the time that like you get to be part of the push towards rewriting that narrative and the company that you're in when you're like, are you guys spending more on granola bars than granola bar on me? Don't make me hungry. <laughs> Congratulations on your twins, by the way. We can't we can't proceed with the conversation without acknowledging that. Uh, and also Aquarius or Pisces, or you don't know. All I know is that, well, first of all, they're technically due on the leap year. So February 29th. Wow. They don't let you go past 38 weeks. So we won't get there. My brother's living in China right now. And he tells me if I get past February 10th, they will be year of the dragon. So, but I don't know if I want them to be year of dragon because I've read about it. And it sounds like there's gonna be a lot of power in this household. I'm like, we need some like nice people too. How about that? We don't need a bunch of power-hungry people in my household, which we all sort of are. (laughs) Well, you know, getting a lot of shit done. And I think to your point of what we were saying about like, it's not about the money. For me, money is a tool. Mm -hmm. Freedom is the goal. And like being able to, for example, know that like whatever happens in my mother's retirement, like I got it. Like that woman raised three children on $30,000 a year. I don't know how she did it. Like I got her. Like my goal is not, I want to make, I want to hoard wealth so that I can like do whatever I want whenever I want. I like being able to do whatever I want whenever I want, but that is also because of freedom and not because of wealth. Um, And you had mentioned in, it was the interview I watched actually right before we got on this podcast about, about the word power. So I'm curious what that means for you. Yeah. It's changed too. Cause for me, power, that was that through line, you know, when I started independent film producing, I saw the hierarchy of power, right? That, that the director's vision, you know, in some ways was beholden to the people who control the purse strings. The story, you know, the person who writes the screenplay and the actors, they were kind of beholden to the director's vision. You know, so the, it's like, who was everyone beholden to, right? So that was that what first got into my head about what what is power even? And what are all of the ways in which to get it and to wield it? And then that turned into more, how do I help women get promotions, move up because I had mentioned earlier, you know, policy change is the only way we're going to make systemic change. So who are setting the policies at the top of these companies, right? The paid family leave. I mean, that would make be game changing to help close the wage and the leadership gap. 
So I think those are that's sort of power in a more traditional, obvious sense. But now, as my life has changed, you know, I live in Los Angeles. I'm having kids. The pandemic did a number on me. I'm defining power, I think, less in like mass influence and more about am I aligned in my life? You know, am I are my days spent according to my values? And that might be taking naps. And that's okay, right? Whereas before, when it was so singularly driven to having like a mass impact on people and policy, and my God, that's so exhausting. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know. I don't want to be a martyr, I think. <laughs> so I'm in the middle of like rewriting what kind of like power and ambition looks like. And knowing that you don't have to necessarily choose, you just know that there are different seasons of life with different priorities that are based on those seasons of life. I think it's the flexibility part and the the resilience part that's probably the most important thing to cultivate. Um, But if you had asked me that question about power a few years ago, I I wouldn't have felt so conflicted in my answer as I do now. I think it's important and vulnerable for people to hear that. I mean, like I, you were mentioning earlier about the fluidity of like the market. And I think emotionally, having been through a collective trauma like the pandemic, everybody listening is has really different values than maybe they had yes. a couple of years ago. And having the permission to say like, oh, this thing that I started this initiative or company or whatever, like really championing. I still champion the mission, but like the way I want to do it has changed. It's changed for me 500 times in six years in in business as well. So thank you for normalizing that. Yeah. And also having a complete, you know, it's like I wrote a book that was published by Simon & Schuster and I got this big advance. I've been on Good Morning America. Like I did all these things. And the biggest learnings out of all of it was in the process of doing it. So what the accolade in and of itself didn't really make me feel any better, right? Because you the goalposts will always move. Okay, you did that. What's next? Or you're on Good Morning America, but like, why didn't you sell more books, right? So there'll always be like, and I think a negative. I mean, if you're an ambitious person, you're pushing yourself, like you're always going to be hungry. You're always going to want more. So to me, what was most interesting in all of this is the, you know, in taking a really big swing in the risks of starting a company, of writing a book, of putting myself out there in the speaking gigs that I do, you know, what did I learn about myself? What are the skills and strengths that I really cultivated? Who are the amazing women I was able to connect with in that? And then reflecting, okay, what do I actually want? How do I craft a life that is aligned with my values? So, you know, I do want to, I mean, of course, these things are nice to have, like, you can, quote, charge more if you have them. But I would say the best part about any of the accomplishments, it's always in the process mm-hmm. of doing, not once you've done it and now you have it on your resume. Uh, I think everybody needed to hear that today. There's something that I did want to dig into with you that we haven't talked about yet. It's that the Ladies Get Paid platform teaches people who are inside of companies how to really optimize their experience from within the company But in order to do that, you built a company. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious just about the differences for you from working in-house to being an entrepreneur and like your thoughts and and tips on that for people who maybe are like, do I want to do my own thing? Like I feel maybe I have even more imposter syndrome or more money fear about that than staying in this job and just pick your brain on that a little bit. 
Yeah. And our, you know, we have a big video library with lots of resources and we've expanded our topics to reach beyond the full-time person for sure. So, so you'll, anybody, whatever stage of career they're at and their ambition, you'll find something for sure. I mean, a lot of what I'm teaching actually the full-time women is an entrepreneurial mindset. <laughs> so I'm kind of teaching them how to operate as if they were business owners within their company. Because even in the process of getting a raise, it's almost like treating your boss and HR as if they're investors, right? And you are a business and it's demonstrating or it's making an effective case to them about why investing in you, right? Giving you more money, they're actually going to get a return on their investment. More money for you is going to mean more money for them. So there's a lot of parallels. I would say anybody who has the itch to do something on their own, the lessons that you learn in doing that, kind of like what I just said here, is you're going to take with you in your whole life. So whether or not this next venture you do is, quote, successful, you're going to create a new venture or you're going to go back to work with these unbelievable lessons and skills that you didn't have before. So the plunge is not as scary as you think, as long as you are really learning from the experience. That's kind of my abstract, like, you know, thing. Um, there's also about weighing sacrifices, right? Every decision you make is going to have a sacrifice, going to have a consequence to it. So I think it's really what can you afford financially and emotionally at this moment in your life? And then at what point will that calculus change? So for example, for me, I oftentimes found myself with more anxiety working for somebody else than I did working for myself. Mm-hmm. I, I feel more secure working for in my financial instability of my own career than I am potentially having, you know, getting fired, right? The shoe feeling like it's going to drop and that's working for somebody else. So only, that's such a personal question. So only you can know that. So I think it really requires creating some kind of reflection loop for yourself, beginning a day, end a day, end of week of like, where's my mindset? What are the triggers? You know, this is much more ongoing work that you'll do, of course, but um, really developing a more intimate relationship with yourself and how you respond to stressors in your life. And can you ride the roller coaster? Because it's going to be crazy either way. So it's sort of just picking which, (laughs) again, which sacrifice can you you live with? Yeah. And I was thinking about this even last night. I went to a concert with some girlfriends and like one of them works for a company and, you know, was I, I, I couldn't even relate because it's been so long since I've worked at a company to some of the things that she was talking about. But just the, the way that she was talking about it, that she's like such a team player and like enjoying so much being a part of somebody else's mission and the creation and ideation of that and how I couldn't even imagine like being that invested in something that I was not personally like the origin point of. Like it's always been that for me. And I think for people who are like, oh, like could I start my own business? Like there's this really beautiful and like liberating kind of identity piece in it that at least for me, I don't want to speak for everybody. Maybe you can speak for yourself, but of just like I knew that I could never show up with the ferocity for anything except what I was going to create myself. Yeah. So here's what's interesting is I'd had a failed startup before. Although I don't even want to call it failed because it was really ladies get paid 1.0. And I kind of look at it as just the sort of practicing. So I did that startup and I wrote down what are all the things that I, I need to learn. And I had a choice. I could continue to try to learn it on my own or I could go get a job where 
I would effectively be taught these things. That made me look at a job more like an MBA. This is kind of where I'm meant like teaching full-time women to think like entrepreneurs. Treat your company as if you were getting an MBA. And the wonderful thing about it is uh, they're paying you to get the MBA. So (laughs) I purposely went to a startup where I wanted to see on a ground level how a company gets built and the hiring and the firing process and pivoting. And, you know, it was like, again, you could learn very expensive lessons on your own, but go soak this up from other people as best as you can. So I was very, very committed because it was a dual purpose, right? I believed in their mission, but I also was really, really there to take notes. And then then it was clear when it was time to go because I wanted to focus on women and that was not their focus, right? So at some point, you'll notice if you're connected with yourself, you know, and you've developed intuition and you'll you'll have that gut feeling that you're ready to jump. You're still going to have fear over it. So don't wait until that's not there. Like you will absolutely have fear. But if you're able to at least go, what are the things that I wanted to learn? And did I learn as much as I could from this place? And if the answer is yes, then it's time to move on. Hot tip. And also the tip I think that you said more subtly, less explicitly is like, you really can't fail in entrepreneurship. I remember my first business, this is embarrassing, but fun to share. First business, uh, my friend lived on the 73rd floor of the Frank Gehry building downtown. And we did like Tinder combo LinkedIn photo shoots for women in her apartment. Uh-huh. I think we made about $5,000. We would host like parties and people would come get like their photos done in one day, like both vibes very first business has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm doing now, but like saw an opportunity, thought it would be fun, tried some things out, made some money and moved on. And I think just like not hinging your entire financial security or your self-worth on the success of seeing what it's like to put your energy behind something, like you said, the lessons of that, right? if you like it and if you make money or not, like what you learn from it. So, so, so much more valuable than should I do this thing? Is it going to be safe? By the way, it's interesting that you think that it has nothing to do with what you do now, because I don't see that. I mean, there's community building in that, Mm. helping women, having people feel like confident about themselves. There's, there's definitely threads there. Thank you. That's true. (laughs) I think it's because the way that I think about it, I feel like I was like so young and like, that we were basically just drinking champagne and taking yeah. pictures. Like, <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> and also you were showing yourself, listen, I could maybe enjoy what I do for a living. Mm. Like there can be fun in it. That's not something we're taught. <laughs> for sure. And also something that we deserve. Like you in- deserve to enjoy the thing mm-hmm. that you spend most of your time doing. Mm-hmm. And I don't enjoy every second of every day of my business. So like, absolutely not. But To feel lit up by it is something that I think too many of us resign ourselves to thinking is just like not even possible. And that makes me feel really sad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So with all of that being said, if you wanted to invite people to join the community, learn more about you, where would you direct them? Great. So ladiesgetpaid.com in general is always a nice place to begin, but also ladiesgetpaid.com slash subscribe. So for updates of events, product launches, et cetera, you want to be on our newsletter. We've also got really good tips that we include there. You can also find me on LinkedIn at Claire Wasserman. 
ladies get paid on all social channels. I'm Claire gets paid on Instagram. And also if you're interested in having me come in and speak at your organization or want to do private coaching, clairewasserman.com. And then I ask these questions to everybody who comes on the podcast. The first I'm dying to know, what is your sign? (laughs) Oh, Sagittarius. I think we did talk about that when I was on a LinkedIn live now that I'm remembering. And do you know you're rising? So my mom doesn't remember what time I was born. So I'm so disappointed, right? Isn't that like the missing piece of information here in order to unlock all these other things about myself? You're (laughs) uh, an astrologer and I will link her in the show notes for people who are like, I want to know what my rising sign is, who does a birth chart reconsolidation. So she basically looks at the history of your life and events that have happened in your life and comes up with your rising sign based on the dates. She's very good, happy to send you her information. Ooh, I love it. I know. I guess I could look up. I mean, it must be in my birth record. Some Somebody knows what time I was born. I mean, the doctor was there. <laughs> and you only need to know with the specificity of two of up to two hours. Uh-huh. So like I could honestly probably do birth chart reconciliation for people at the level I study astrology, but that's neither here nor there. We're getting off topic. The last question that I always ask people is what's your why? Why do you do what you do? Yeah, I do what I do. I think at the core, it's so that everyone, but specifically women, don't feel like they have to just accept what they're given, that their current circumstances don't need to dictate their future. I love that. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with my community. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. See you witches next time.